Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, as always, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, man, how's it going? It's good. I'm really, really excited. We're in Chapter 4, Stranger Things 3. The two of us are going to have one great conversation. Did you see that? There you go. Great. I like it. Yes. (laughs) Nailed it. Nailed it. (laughs) How are you tonight, man? Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, before we get into chapter four, I have to show you something. I have um, Stranger Things, Trivial Pursuit, really back to the 80s is what they call it. And Ooh. it's lots of questions about 80s pop culture. There is a category <laughs> for Stranger Things, but I believe it only covers the first and, and second season. Maybe, oh, maybe a, okay. a little of season three. But I want to ask you a question. I want to see a random question. I'm, I have a, a stack <laughs> of cards here. I know you listeners at home won't be able to see us, but you know, I have a stack of cards. I'm really just going to pull oh, a card out here. Okay, I'm going to pull. This is random. Just pick randomly a card, any card. card. Yeah, that one. Card I want to pick that one yeah, right there. That one. <laughs> so just like in real trivial, not that this isn't real, it, it's the branded game, but there are categories and they are movies, TV, music, famous people and events trends tech and fun that these are all that's all one category trends tech Wait, and fun every oh trend, okay i thought you meant like all the stuff you just said yeah was one so category. okay like that's a lot yeah yeah that, this is confusing <laughs> category one movies category okay. two tv category ah, okay. three music category four is famous people and events so that all that's kind of like the history category right okay um green is trends tech and fun all one category, and then I guess it's orange. It's Stranger Things. It has its okay. own category. So, okay. would you like to pick a category? So, I'd like to pick two. Okay, I want to pick one it. category that's not Stranger Things, and then I'll pick Stranger Things. So, I want to try to get two questions <laughs> answered to test my knowledge it. that I will either affirm how much of an 80s guy I am or completely denounce all the stuff that I've said on this podcast up to date about how I am a child of the 80s by failing miserably to answer these questions. And this is random. I have not pre-screened this question (laughs) or this card. (laughs) I haven't fed you any answers. Yeah, I I will either go with TV or movies, and I think I'm going to go with movies. I feel pretty confident in the movie category since I co-host a movie podcast, although we don't cover a lot of 80s movies unless you're on it, so (laughs) taking a risk. Maybe it's one that I've I've covered with you. Let's see. All right. Let's see. Let's Let's do it. (laughs) In what 1980 comedy does loud dresser and loud talker Al Cervic annoy the posh members of the Bushwood Golf Course. That would be Caddyshack. You got it. Yes. yes. You win the game. Well, I do no, win the you, game. you won half of the game. You have to now answer one Stranger Things question. <laughs> Stranger Things question. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read it. Well, you want it from the same card or want me to pull yeah. a, a random? I mean, card? I think you said this only extends to the end of season two. So I hope there's no spoilers. I won't for ask season it. Three. I'll skip it. I haven't read it yet, but I will not ask it if it does include a Stranger Things three question. How about that? I that will sounds perfect. Take a okay. card. All right. Okay. 
I'm pretty sure this is not <laughs> a spoiler. <laughs> I love your maybe, confidence maybe. level. <laughs> Who is Mike speaking to when he says, if we're both going crazy, then we'll go crazy together, right? That would be Will on the night That's- of Halloween in season two, where they are eating a ton of candy. I mentioned in our episode, I love the production design all the rappers, of that bottle right? of candy. Yeah. Yes. And that's where Will actually describes what he's feeling as being like in a viewfinder between slides in jumping back and forth between our world and the upside down. Very good. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed too. That feels really good. I kind of <laughs> want to ask you one two. more. <laughs> you can feel free to do that. It's fine. <laughs> I feel like because this is a TV podcast, I think I have to do one TV question. Okay, that. that's fair. Uh, I'm just going to randomly pull. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the boss? That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> question mark. Question mark. Uh, <laughs> the title. <laughs> I'm, I'm just He's trying to see. To like what TV <laughs> action hero could make the most out of items like a stethoscope, mothballs, and a drinking straw? That would be MacGyver. You got it. Okay. You win. Oh, man. I'm, I'm, three I'm for in. three. I'm the king. I'm the king. Okay. Maybe one day we'll do a live game. Not live, but we'll record an entire game with us. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Aaron. Somebody yeah. else. Absolutely. We well, can get uh, my buddy Francisco. He hosts a podcast called the Retro Rewind Podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Also a big Stranger Things fan. So maybe the four of us can go off and compete against each yeah, other. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's way. Stranger Things only accounts for one-sixth of the questions because, and you do, like any Trivial Pursuit game, you have to get the wedge for all six categories, right? So, yes. you know, some of these might be harder than others. For us, we like TV and movies, but famous people and events from the 80s, mm, like, that could be hit or miss, you know? <laughs> Depends on how well I was right. paying attention at that point in my life. Trends, tech, and fun, same thing. Like, uh, it really depends on what it is. So yeah. There could be some more difficult ones in there for us. Because, you know, we were in our toddler years through, like, preteen years, basically. Mm-hmm. So We sort of remember enough to feel yeah. great about the things that we recognize, but not so great about the things that were just out of our reach. Yeah, in right. terms of, like, 1980, the only reason I knew Caddyshack was because I recognized the golf reference. That was right. the only, you know... And and that's it. also one of those rare comedies that just sort of played forever on TV in the 90s. True. It just was constantly being rerun. And the TV version was always heavily edited, of course. But Yes, it <laughs> <anyway>. was. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's a fun game. I was looking it up, and it's actually no longer available, it looks like, on Amazon. It's out of stock. So I don't know how one would get this game now, but... <laughs> the eBay. I'll sell you mine for... $5,000. Oh, man. What a steal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Anyway. I'll find it somewhere. eBay might have it at some point. Yeah. In some, and in I'm some sure there are capacity. other sites other than Amazon out there that sell you know, uh, games. We default to Amazon, <laughs> just like yeah. we default to Google for searching. So <laughs> right. are you going to Amazon that to me? What? <laughs> Don't do that. That's not, that's not right. Yeah. It's like turning uh, tissues into you know, calling every tissue a Kleenex. Yeah, or, or when you Xerox something. Yeah, right. Or every uh, flying disc is not a Frisbee. <laughs> yeah, or eating Jello as opposed to gelatin. Right. Yeah. There you go. 
or Hydrox and Oreo. <laughs> See, there it is right there. I knew you'd get back to Hydrox at some point. <laughs> it sounds like a cough syrup or something. Anyway, I know. Um, not as appealing as Oreo. Yeah. Just sounds O-R-E-O. Happy. I mean, how do you make a jingle out of Hydrox? Hydrox is good. No, that's not good. Yeah. Well, we are in the midst of this current season, current entry. I believe this is the halfway point uh, epi- or chapter four of yeah. this particular entry. So by the end of this episode, we'll be like right in the middle of this eight episode. Yeah. I wanted to just give a couple of thoughts before we dive into the mm-hmm. details. The big thing for me that I took away from this episode is that there's a lot of action mm-hmm. and that the Duffer brothers are really getting as creators. Obviously I know Sean Levy, this is the second of two. They're really getting into the the horror aspect of it, which I don't mind. I mean, we're sort of gradually being put into it, but there was a lot of like, when I say violence, I mean like sort of action violence, like a lot of heavy hitting, a lot of booms, a lot of sound editing and mixing that felt very heavy. This is a very heavy episode, right? not just emotionally, but also just structurally. I mean, from the very beginning, we're like, what just happened here? So there's a lot of just beating up, a lot of fights, a lot of battling going on. And yeah. I, I think it's it's good because... In some ways, I'm reminded of the Harry Potter books and movies that sort of slowly get a little bit more mature, a little bit more dark, a little darker, and how J.K. Rowling just has a way of being able to integrate her audience at the time into aging the characters, aging the story, maturing the story as her readers get older. And I think the same thing is sort of happening here with Stranger Things. So you look at season one, you look at the first entry, it definitely feels like a traditional 80s type like horror suspense second season gets us a little bit more into it and then this particular season and this particular episode really does hit on a lot of like heaviness like wow didn't expect that like what that that's very deliberate very direct when things happen and it it made me kind of sit back a little bit and go whoo i don't know how how i feel about that (laughs) right right yeah and i think like you said i think it's very purposeful that they I'm sure imagine, okay, if we have kids watching season one, that as they continue to watch this series, they're not going to keep watching it if it still feels like a show targeting 12-year-olds, like the Goonies or something like that. They're going to want it to mature with them as they get older and they want more rights, you know, more violence, more blood, more gore, you know, so they have to kind of mature the show along with the, the actors as well and with the viewers watching it. So I think it's, uh, it's a very conscious decision. Well, let's go ahead and get into the details. We're starting, as always, with the cold open. It's raining. We're at Max's house, and Elle is having flashbacks from the previous episode. Not that she watched the previous episode, but these are her personal experiences. Uh, last we checked, and she's genuinely worried both about Heather and Billy And in that conversation with Max, Max is really trying to reassure her. She tries to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, which I I find very similar to what I do. Like I provide levity in moments where things can get a little tense. I try maybe to a fault where I I tend to joke about things more than I should. But I think Max is doing this in a way that is more about reassurance. She says something about how, yeah, Billy's not, you know, he's no weirder than normal. I think he's fine. She even kind of makes a comment about how Heather had a fever, and so she took a ice bath. Still don't think that seems a very 
common or if no, like, yeah, I just take ice baths. So it, I think in some ways Max is trying to reassure herself that what they saw, what Elle experienced and what she experienced being over at the house was not as weird as what they experienced. And I think she's definitely a much more positive force in this show than she was in season two when she was introduced that in that season she was clearly more of like the outsider that didn't fit in kind of had a a negative or sort of grumpy way about her she just was kind of very yeah you know very guarded kept people at a distance but now she's at least with 11 she's very comfortable and just excited to sort of introduce her to all the things that she loves in this case reading comic books and sleeping during a sleepover i think she she like shows her green lantern and wonder woman and says which one (laughs) as if she's seen or heard of either but clearly she hasn't yeah and i like that she calls out wonder woman and she's Basically saying girl power for the win at this point. Yeah. She likes to just reassure her that, look, women can be just as powerful as men. She describes her perfectly. This is Wonder Woman, a.k.a. Princess Diana. She's from Paradise Island, which is like this hidden island where there are only women Amazon warriors. I like how the camera just sort of pans back, kind of gives us the assurance and the intention that she's going to just kind of read her the story like a dad or a mom reading to, right. to their kid. Yeah, yeah, like it's sit really back cool. and, and enjoy a story, yeah. And then we move over to Mrs. Driscoll's house. It's still raining because that's what happens in horror movies and TV shows. It's always <laughs> raining at night. Yeah, Doris is freaking out, and I'm kind of freaking out with her because she's freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? She's being taken away in an ambulance, and she's yelling, I have to go back. I have to go back. And as she's in the ambulance, Adam, she reaches out a hand and the camera kind of pans over and it's the steelworks. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure she's possessed by something. I don't know what (laughs) it is, but it's apparently something that loves fertilizer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the signs are uh, pointing to, yes, (laughs) that she is somehow possessed and somehow connected to the steelworks. Yeah. And so we're at the steelworks. And we start seeing Heather's parents. So they weren't killed, as you mentioned. They were Mm -hmm. just sort of incapacitated. They're tied up. And we do get confirmation that this is the editor of the paper uh, later in the episode in that scene with Jonathan and Nancy. So good call there. Interesting shot here. I don't know if this was intentional. After Billy and Heather are talking to the parents and they're freaking out and they're like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. They turn to leave and they go up the stairs. Did you see the way that they turned like in unison? Yeah. I don't know was... if that was I don't know if that was by design, but it looked really, really creepy the way that they like both turned 90 degrees. And I was like, did you guys just do that like a ballet troupe? Like you were like <laughs> like a Broadway show here where you're completely in sync with each other? Wow, that was eerie. Yeah, it definitely felt intentional, almost like their job is done. So now they were instructed to leave and they were given somehow telepathically an instruction to leave at the exact same time. So they both did an about face and, you know, headed up the stairs. And it was, I think, a clever direction. I mean, this is Sean Levy directing. He's saying, okay, both turn at the exact same time and it will be super creepy, I'm sure. So you could easily miss this if you were focusing, for example, on the parents in the foreground who were like, scared out of their minds (laughs) but yeah it's there that's a nice little little moment and the last shot we see is really the best glimpse of the monster 
this season yes. that we have because everything's been dark and we've seen partial things. We've seen liquid goo and just different kind of forms here and there. But it's almost like a spider, I think, crawling, very liquefied. So again, mm-hmm. the Stranger Things budget has increased and we can see that on the screen. And this is one of those moments that I mentioned earlier of like, oh, wow, the tentacle or whatever it is shoots out and grabs the face of both parents and just starts, it looks like sucking, like sucking or or, or delivering. I couldn't right. tell. I'm assuming that it's pushing stuff in to their bodies because there's possession happening here, but I right. don't know. In any case, the movement of all that and the sound in this, I really did. I kid you not, just felt creepy. I felt yeah. uncomfortable in this scene. And I think it's because I'd never seen something like this before and because it was so abrupt. Because before, we were sort of teased with Heather laying on the ground and this thing kind of coming at her and then it cuts away. Here, right. in this instant, Sean's Levy's like, no, I'm going to show you everything. And yeah. here you go. Yeah, We're four episodes in now. You get to see this happen now. Like, we're not going to hold back anymore. <laughs> get to? Get to? I just yeah. don't know. I don't it's feel like... privileged seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... And if I'm not mistaken, this thing is comprised of like organic material from like exploded rats, basically, that they all like blew up and it kind of morphed together into this like organic blob that grew arms and tentacles. And like that's I'm gathering how it formed. It seems like that's what happened. So I have sort of a thought after this episode in thinking that this could play into the all bees die the fact that it's using organic material to live and to feed off of like the rats. So the rats are possessed, they explode. And then what we see is that liquid thing kind of going towards this bigger tentacle thing. My thought is that because it's possessing all of these individuals, they're really just cavities at this point. They're really just sort of skeletons. Now they do have their brains intact because we know that Billy and others are conscious enough to know what's going on. They're not zombified or anything like that. Right. But I believe that there's enough about them that's gone that if and when this monster is destroyed or when it doesn't have a hold on any of these people that we've seen so far, they're just going to die. So I'm sort of mourning ahead of time. <laughs> like anyone that's quote unquote possessed might not make it. Yeah. Unless there's exactly. yeah. a creative solution that... <laughs> These kids and maybe Mr. Clark helps them figure out. He can do it. Yeah. I I think that was his one episode this season. I don't recall if he comes back this season, but you know, they they always find a way. Yeah. He had to go work on the next iteration of the giant. (laughs) (laughs) Hints at another show that we watched. Yeah. Sorry. Check it out. Can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Then we hit the opening credits. After that, we're at Hopper's cabin. A groggy Hopper wakes up to Joyce over him, and then he pukes. Not because Joyce is over him, not because she's there, but it's a great kind of, it's almost like a spit take where yeah. it's like, oh, it's sweet. And then, oh. here, here, here. Ah. Sorry. That's it. Got it? Oh. Here. And he. He got beat down and I'm happy to see that he's covered in bruises and not, you know, in a a lesser show, he would be just perfectly fine. 
in the next episode, like nothing ever happened, but he's, he clearly yeah. went through a grueling fight and is feeling it. Yeah. On the back, on his back, you could definitely see it when he gets up, you can see the big yep. bruise on his back, which I thought was a right. great detail. Yep. There's a really cool de- like gag when he stands up, he's obviously covered with a blanket. He stands up and he's still kind of out of it. And the blanket falls off and Joyce is like, where am I close? Like you didn't know that he was naked. Of course you did because you're the one that put him there. And why? I know that it was raining. I know that she mentions your clothes were wet or soaked or whatever, but even your underwear, like did he need to take off his underwear? Like <laughs> that's, she didn't. She was just being a perv is what she was or, doing. <laughs> or, or was he, because she did say that he was in and out of it. So maybe he was like half conscious, just like like drunk, basically taking off his clothes and she's just kind of trying to get him down. Hey, I'm trying to defend a an unlikely situation, but it's, yeah. uh, it was a gag. You know, it was yeah. for a joke and it was good. Yeah. So she's wondering who the guy is that attacked Hopper and she makes a suggestion that they should try to find him because she has this partial license. And I really love this moment because Joyce has sort of taken on the mantle of, I'm a detective, or at least I'm trying to be. And the way she tries to explain... What are the dashes? They're blanks. There was, I think it was either an H or a P with the part rubbed off, and there was definitely a Y for sure. And that, I think, was a B, but it could have been an eight. And I think you should stick to sales. So the whole bit where she's like explaining and his facial expressions, I can imagine him in this like mental state of like, I'm hungover, I'm out of it, and I've been beat up. You're throwing numbers and letters and dashes at me. And I think it's appropriate that he finishes that conversation by saying, stick to sales, Joyce, you're not a detective. (laughs) It's really, really funny. Although, in her defense, she's been doing quite a good job detecting and figuring out everything. I mean, we don't know that she's correct yet, but she's figured out quite a lot to do with the magnets and all of that. You know, she's smarter than Hopper gives her credit for. That's all I'll say. Well, yeah, and that comes across... After he says that line, she reveals that the guy wasn't driving a car. And that kind of gives him a little aha moment like, oh, yeah, there probably aren't a lot of non-cars in Hawkins in this small town. Right. That narrows it down significantly in terms of those missing numbers from the plate. And um, when he comes out, again, another little quick gag before we move to the next scene, he comes out in that kind of Magnum P.I. shirt, revealing that he can wear more than a uniform. And she's like where did you get that? And the scene yeah, ends. It's what, just, I think she says, what are you wearing? <laughs> and then it cuts. <laughs> and it was the outfit that he was going to wear for her. They wore for her at dinner that night that he just got from JC Penny, right? That flow brought in the JC Penny bag. Yeah. yeah. I think we determined it could have been from Goodwill just in a JC Penny <laughs> right. bag, but we can go right. on the assumption that it was from JC Penny. So then we're at Max's house. Uh, Lucas is calling out the code red. I think this, was in the first season, because we talked about the code yeah. red. Uh, he's calling Max on the walkie, and Max promptly turns it off. This escalates to Max calling her on the phone and demanding they get to the house. So I think this is the first time that we get the potential for everybody in this crew, the Fantastic Four, or what I've called them so many different <laughs> things, the, yeah. the, the four guys, and then the new people, all at once together in Mike's basement where we get right. a little bit more of an explanation. 
Still minus Dustin, though. I mean, he's having his own great adventure, don't get me wrong, but he really does get sort of um, the shaft from the crew in this in this season. And maybe it's partially his own fault. He's kind of ventured off on his own as a result of feeling you know, sort of abandoned during his initial experiment to, to talk to Susie. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. interesting, but I'm sure they'll find a way to all get back together. I, I'm assuming they will. It happens every season. And yep. for the two that we've seen in their entirety. One thing I want to observe is that we're four episodes in and there's still no sign of Max and Billy's parents. So the no. absentee parents have now resumed their role of not being around at all. And I don't think we ever got any explanation about what they do or why they are absent from the series. And if this continues, I would be a little frustrated from a storytelling standpoint because they really have no point other than to give Billy agency for why he is the way he is, which is an important thing. Right. But you could have probably found a better way to give him agency for his behavior besides the fact that you need a dad to come in and wail on him. Throw a flashback at me, you know? Yeah. So I don't I don't know if like the Duffers and Sean Levy and everybody are just sort of waiting for them to have a different kind of impact on the series, but I did notice that like I haven't seen them at all and they're not really involved really in any part of the series except for that one those one or two scenes late in season two. Yeah, I feel like they're just trying to show the different types of families that were commonplace in the mid eighties and there there was the kind of latchkey kid generation of kids where the parents were both working and they were not home until seven o'clock at night every night. So you just had the kids you know, of a certain age, teenagers, you know, and clearly Billy is most likely 18 now because he's the same age as Steve. And they both, I'm assuming, graduated at this point. Or I don't know, Billy might not have graduated, but <laughs> <laughs> Billy just stopped going to school <laughs> he because just, he didn't he have just to. dropped out probably. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Become a full time lifeguard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I great life. I, I think that they're trying to illustrate that yeah, these kids come from sort of a a different type of home where the where there isn't the kind of Mrs. Wheeler who's just there cooking dinner and you know there to take care of everything, clean the house all the time. That these two parents are just absent. They're not available not around whether by their own fault or because they just need the money and they need to both be working full-time i mean we don't really know but like you said a little a little more backstory might be helpful i mean you can show them but show them in a flashback or show them not directly involved Mm -hmm. in the present day stuff at least i know that okay they do have parents we don't have to make fun of that and that they're just not around that's enough for me Right. And that could be enough agency for Billy to be like, I'm pissed off because I don't have a father figure. Right, right. And by them not being around, it would be fine. I just think that when you're showing a character for an episode and they do something as dramatic as Billy's dad and you don't show him again, I wonder if that's sort of a waste of an actor or a waste of a quick kind of subplot that could be used more economically without that actor having to be part of the present day stuff. So not an issue necessarily, but just kind of an eyesore for me at this point of like, oh yeah, they have parents, they're not around. What's up with that? Yeah. And we don't, we don't get a ton of parent moments in general, but we, I mean, the most we get really is Mrs. Wheeler, I would say. I mean, and we get a little, a little bit of Dustin's mom. I mean, the most, actually, that's not true. The most is Winona Ryder. I mean, she's, I keep, I was, oh yeah, she's (laughs) a mom. She's got two kids, two main characters. So, but yeah, it's, it's a show about the kids. So they're clearly focusing, conserving their, their time and focusing on those kid characters primarily. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. So you mentioned Dustin's not part of the crew at this point. He is 
like you said, having his own adventure with Steve and Robin outside Starcourt. He's spying on the Lynx workers, and then he goes to provide a little bit of a briefing to Robin and Steve. And I love Steve's reaction. I think one of the themes of this season is Steve tries to get his mojo back. Like, I think that's kind of one of his, right. his goals in the season is to try to become cool Steve again. And after hearing about the armed guards, he says, Well, you know, I could just take him out. Take who out? The Russian guard. What? I sneak up behind him, I knock him out, and I take his key card. It's easy. Did you not hear the part about the massive gun? Which prompts Dustin to call up all the times that Steve has gotten pummeled of which we've right. seen. Right. <laughs> we have been witness to. Yeah. With Jonathan. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think it's interesting because he was the big shot in high school, but this is a classic example of once those big shots graduate, unless they got a scholarship to college to keep playing, you know, whatever they're good at, they don't really have that anymore. They, they basically peaked. So Steve is trying to find a way to, Prove to himself more than anybody, I think, that he's still got something to offer. Meanwhile, Robin gets an idea that requires all of the tip money. Much to Steve's chagrin, he yells, half of that's mine. That's right. <laughs> She's like, I got a job to do, guys. I'll be back in a jiffy. And what a great little way to finish the scene. Dustin is licking the ice cream scoop yeah. and Steve grabs <laughs> it and then puts it in his pocket like a gun in a holster, like he flicks it. He's like, oh, dude, come on, man, not my scooper. But <laughs> he's comfortable enough in his yeah. outfit and in his job that he can flick the scooper like a gun into a holster. I love that. Yeah. I kind of like the fact that it's just the two of them at this ice cream shop. Like there's never a, yeah. uh, a crazy manager dude that's like breathing down their necks seeing like, get to work. Like, no, they're just like self-managing and it's yeah. the two of them. They're they're clearly in charge and... Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's somebody else that's never there that comes in and does inventory and stuff. But yeah, it's not a horrible job, I would say. Yeah. Uh, by, the, by the way, Scoops Ahoy is not a real place, but it is now a real place if you can ever go to the Stranger Things experience. It's a sort of live escape room type event that you can get tickets to go to. When you exit the experience, you basically go into like a recreation of the Starcourt Mall and there's a Scoops Ahoy and you can go have ice cream. There's a bar, there's a pizza shop, there's an arcade. It's really kind of amazing. And you can hang out as long as you want and buy merchandise and listen wow. to 80s music. And yeah, it's crazy. I would hang out until closing and then go hunt down Russians. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they'd like that. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not part of the experience, but... If you want to bring some Russians with you and make up your own adventure, I, hey, go for it. Back at Hawkins Post, Nancy and Jonathan are outside the editor's office waiting to, quote, see the principal. They were sitting there as if they were going to get detention or something for doing something wrong in yeah. school. It really felt like that. They're, they're in trouble. <laughs> they're in trouble. Uh, he comes out and he's sweaty. And we know what that means. We do. <laughs> they yeah. don't just yet. And Adam... I mentioned this to you offline, but I want to just yeah. sort of go into detail. I absolutely think this is the most memorable scene that uses the Dutch angle. We've talked about the Dutch angle. It's in Ted Lasso. It's in Halt and Catch Fire. We've discussed how it's used, why it's used, creating tension. Mm -hmm. But the way it gets introduced is absolutely phenomenal. 
And if you're not familiar with the Dutch angle, it's essentially a camera angle that is offset. So if you're looking at a scene, the director of photography or the director decides to shift the angle of the camera. So everything is sort of somewhat diagonal to create this unevenness and create real tension. When you watch this scene, you have Tom, the editor, who's talking to them saying you're in trouble and these are the reasons why. Nancy pushes back and then he slams his chair or something. And right when he slams his chair, the camera abruptly shifts to a Dutch angle. And it actually vibrates a little bit as if the camera was on the set and his slamming of whatever it was shook the camera. And then the rest of the scene is all Dutch angles. It's such a creatively phenomenal way. I mean, I, I really was like, oh my gosh, not just because you and I have talked about it, but because it is so effective in what's happening here. Like the tension needed to get ratcheted up because we know what happened to Tom. They don't know, but they're starting to get a little bit of an idea. The fact that he goes through all these like six different facts of why they screwed up and the sixth fact being you're fired or you're fired as our (laughs) former president would say. It's just the way that that shot, I think it's probably my favorite scene in this episode just for the Dutch angle alone. Like everything else is good too. But I think again, it just, it blew my mind when I saw that. I was like, wow, what a great way to get there and then stay there. Absolutely. Yeah, this was phenomenal. And and just like you said, the way it almost feels like the actor who was, I guess, kicking the chair, you know, into the into the desk, it rattled the set so much that it caused the camera on a tripod to kind of to just shift on its tripod or to slip a little bit. And, And then from there, we're so even though it cuts, even though the camera changes shots were were in the Dutch angle for the remainder of the scene, basically, regardless of who the camera is on. So it's like it permanently impacted. And I think that it really does enhance the uneasiness of what is happening here, because not as you said, not only are they witnessing a possessed individual who they were like, why is he sweating so much? And they don't know why, but they clearly something is off with him. He's he's even more of a jerk than normal. But also, they're about to lose their summer jobs, and that's a huge deal for both of them. So this is a yeah. uh, an unnerving scene, and this just enhances it. I think what makes that Dutch angle so effective here, as we saw in Ted Lasso, is that in both instances, it felt like an interrogation, right? where Tom is interrogating these two, Ted was interrogating Jamie, and that Dutch angle provides the sense of like superiority-inferiority. Like, I think mm-hmm. I mentioned that on the Ted Lasso podcast that before I even knew what a Dutch angle was, I thought it was just sort of used to show authority, like a superiority of a coach to his, not student, but his player. Subordinate, yeah. Subordinate, yeah. Well, in this case, yeah. with Tom, yeah. yeah, the boss to the thing. And I think that's part of it. But I also think that tension equally makes it that way. And again, you're right. When he slams the chair into the desk, the fact that, it's like we got rattled too because we're the ones mm-hmm. watching it. Our perspective got shifted and we're like, whoa, what just happened here? It's not like the scene started with that. It 
abruptly change to it. And I like the fact that it's not used like that all the time. That Dutch angle, like any interesting angle, if it's overused, then it becomes less effective for what it's trying to do. And so that's why I think I was really blown away is that I never expected it. I'd never expected it to do that, to be, in, be introduced that way, and then to stay in that moment throughout the right. rest of that scene. Well, and like you said, we are kind of the camera in this scene. And so his violence that he, he kind of, when he kind of erupts, it's a way of the director making us feel what the characters are feeling in that room, what Nancy and you know is feeling like that. We, we get it too, because like you said, everything shakes and it's sort of similar, like in, in certain action movies, when, when there's some violence and someone gets hit or something like a medieval battle and like you see blood splatter at the, on the lens or something like that, you know, it's like this sense that the it's coming at you and you right. feel more immersed in the scene as a result of that. You feel like, oh, I'm I'm there on the battlefield with these, you know, warriors fighting, or I'm in yeah. that office, I'm in that room with those characters getting reamed by the editor of the paper. So yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. it was a very well directed scene in this episode. Then the episode kicks over to Mike's house. This is where Will is giving everyone an update on what he's been experiencing. So things that we've seen already, he's sort of verbalizing it. This is like the second time that he has verbalized in a really great way what he's feeling. He did the same thing with the uh, the viewfinder. Mm-hmm. He says it's the feeling he has is like being on a roller coaster and everything in your body is sinking, but it's worse. I think this episode has a lot of little like levity moments, Sean levity moments, if you will. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, where you have just like lines here and there that sort of like, huh, that's funny. Yeah. So when he says, when he asks the question, you know when you drop on a roller coaster? Sure. Yeah. No. Like very, yeah. Like I don't even know what you're talking about. Like what's a roller coaster? Well, why would she, you know? And that's the other thing. She's clearly been sheltered even since she's been reintroduced into the world. They're hiding her. So she has had very little experience with anything. And that's why I think this this is a good season for her because she does get to start to be a kid, you know, start to really be, or in this in this case, be a teenager. Yeah, and I think this moment really reminds us of that and the fact that she doesn't have the knowledge of being a preteen or a teenager. Yes, she's making out with her boyfriend, and it's awkward like we recognize that whether or not you're an experienced teenager or you're a sheltered teenager, it's still, there are things that are familiar, but moments like that remind me that, oh yeah, she was once in a hospital tucked away where she didn't get to experience anything that we know of. So I think those are really fun moments to just give us that. Oh yeah. I forgot. Yeah. That little reminder. Exactly. We also get the aha moment that when Will was exercised, the dust that we saw leaving his house was actually a piece of the mind flayer. I think we discussed a little bit like, we what did. Could that yeah, mean? We, Is it just a little, what, what is that kind of going up into the night sky or whatever? It was, uh, yeah, clearly something, that was coming back <laughs> in this season. And it did. Yeah, so this is a dot connector for me, obviously, that yeah. dust. L closes the gate, but a piece of the mind flare stays. And at the end of the scene, after they start talking about the fact that there might be another host, L says, how can you tell if someone is a host? And... I'm like, well, just take a look at Billy. And then I think, well, Billy's kind of a jerk anyway. Like, he's he's kind of a sociopath in yeah. general. So how would that differentiate? On a good, on a good day. <laughs> on yeah. a good day, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
maybe he's not working out as much. That's what yeah. makes him, you know, because he doesn't need to. I don't know. Like, Billy, like you're not smoking or drinking enough. Are you possessed? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These are good questions to ask him, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Billy? Why are you not doing things that are going to just tear your body up? Because <laughs> right. I've got a mind flare in me that's tearing my body up for me. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so Town Hall, Hopper and Joyce go to visit Klein. Hopper walks in very directly, goes past the secretary. He yeah. goes into Klein's office, locks the door behind him, and in my mind, I'm like, okay, here we go. Yep. <laughs> here we go. What's going to happen? <laughs> Hopper's not uh, you know, beating around the bush anymore. He's No. He's, he's ready to talk. <laughs> he's, he's ready to do more than talk. And more. He's ready to, <laughs> yeah. And more. <laughs> We get that flashback to the guy from uh, a couple of days ago, which we talked about in the last episode, something that was sort of subtle, but like not so subtle. The Russian guy coming out of Klein's office. Hopper then starts threatening Klein in order to get answers, talking about uh, cocaine and sleeping with someone who's not your wife. Klein then fires back with his own threats about pills that were probably not prescription. And working, you know, being on duty, drunk, things like that. Yeah, just... sure. Yeah, all things that make Hopper such a stand-up guy. (laughs) (laughs) And so Hopper says, okay, I'm just done playing. So he basically breaks Klein's nose trying to find out the guy's name. And I love, oh gosh, Carrie Ells is so great. He (laughs) he asks the guy's name and Klein goes, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I laugh (laughs) and then I think, Schwarzenegger's not Russian. Uh, Austrian, yeah. But, you know, Eastern European, you know, just yeah, uh, yeah. It's all one <laughs> the ethnocentric part yeah, of the, the eth- world, you know. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we lump everybody that's not American into Russians like that if yeah. they don't live here. But, I mean, I think he was, when Arnold grew up, I think it was part of the Soviet Union. Because I think one of the reasons he left was to get away from communism, I believe. So, anyway, I, he's no, he's not Russian, but... It makes sense. And, and if you think about it, this is 1980, is it 85? Or I forget, what, 85. So Arnold Schwarzenegger was not necessarily a, a household name just yet. I mean, he had made like Conan the Barbarian and the Terminator. And maybe Commando came out that summer, or, but it hadn't come out yet, perhaps, in this timeline. So he may not have been as widely known and recognizable at this point. So maybe people just saw the last name Schwarzenegger and they're like, well, that's not, you know, that could be Russian, whatever. That ain't American. Yeah. That, <laughs> Probably that <Russians>. ain't American. <laughs> <laughs> that's from over there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so after that snarky comment, Hopper results to potentially cutting off Klein's finger with that little cigar trimmer thing. So he's going kind of mobster on him, going kind of gangster. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, what's funny about that is that when they first showed that, they had like a close-up shot when they first introduced his character. And I remember thinking when I first watched it, that's going to come into play later. Like you don't show a close-up <laughs> of a cigar cutter like that in such detail without that serving a purpose later. And it, it, it does. Yeah. So in that moment, Klein reveals that the guy works for Starcourt and that they, I guess, Starcourt want to expand to other parts of Hopkins. I keep saying Hopkins. I did it again. Not Hopkins <laughs> County. This is not Anthony, Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins. <laughs> yeah. He owns Starcourt too. <laughs> right. Sir Starcourt. Anyway, it's it's, yeah. it's the Star uh, Arthur's Court is what it is. That's what it is. Um, anyway. <laughs> so yeah, he wants to expand to other parts of Hawkins. 
they need more answers. So he enjoys escort Klein out of the office ever so obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think when we cut back to the, I guess, like the waiting room with the secretary where Joyce is kind of waiting. And then all of a sudden, you know, Klein just comes like running through the out the door like he was shoved throughout, you know, out the door. Yeah. Kind of flying across the room. <laughs> yeah. Joyce has a great moment here, too, where the secretary is about to call the police and Joyce basically does the thing that you do in the 80s is pull the pull the phone cord out. And she's like, who are you? Who are you calling? The police? Like, Because yeah. the chief police is he right is back the there yeah. doing a number on your boss. <laughs> yeah. I love the small town dynamic, too, where they just both know yes. each other so well that they know all the vices of everybody. And yeah. just everyone just kind of keeps their mouth shut. Just kind of mm-hmm. knowing everyone looks the other way. Yep. Yep. It's a true small town dynamic for sure. Yeah. Then we're in Jonathan's car. BS returns to Nancy's mouth. Gosh, a return from season two, I think, where she <laughs> went on a BS rampage with Steve. But she right. basically calls the whole situation that they just got out of BS because, you know, she doesn't think it's fair. She's not buying anything that Tom is saying. She accuses him of being on drugs because he sees what we see, or she sees what he what we see, which is clammy hands, sweating, and all that stuff. This is a levy moment. I'm just going to start calling these. And what I'm seeing is that they're usually with pairs, which makes sense because that's where your strongest dialogue is. You're not having multiple people talking. This is one of two in the episode. She's being very honest with him, Jonathan, and Jonathan's being very honest with her. She's frustrated, and he sort of defends, like, it's really your fault, Nancy, because you pursued this, even though I told you not to. And she's like, well, who cares? I mean, it's a stupid job. And he says, I don't live in a two-story house on Maple Street. My dad doesn't earn six figures. Hell, he isn't even around. God, here comes all of her twist routine. Mortgage, college tuition. You know, they're real things, Nancy. Things that you don't care about only because you don't have to. I didn't realize I lived in a bubble. Well, you do. I kid you not. I've had similar conversations with people, including my wife, where frustration has been built up and you're sort of letting your guard down because you're just either stressed or emotionally weak and all the crap that you're thinking just comes out, even though you know it's not okay to say, even though you know that you need to have a filter and that, yes, what's in your head is not necessarily the truth about someone. So if I said, I hate my wife, I don't hate my wife. In the moment, I might say that because I'm frustrated with all these other things that are going on. They might be related to my relationship with her. I think the same thing is happening here where Jonathan is like, these are things that you've been thinking. These are things that sort of came up in season one where he called out her for her life of, you know, your mom married your dad for security. You're probably going to end up being that way, even though you want to be this rebel girl. And I think this is one of the most honest conversations that they've had up to this point about what they need. Jonathan needs this job more than she does. I think they both need it. For different reasons, though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He needs money to go to college, basically. She wants to start a career as a writer. So it's not really about the money. It's more just about her establishing herself in the workforce and, you know, following her dream. And so it's more of a want for her, more of a need for him. And I think that's where the breakdown occurs. Yeah. And a little bit of toxic masculinity that we've seen, obviously, in the first few episodes bleeds over where I think she sees it in him because she feels like he's just one of them because of some of the things that he says. 
And she says, you don't know what it's like. And she's right. I mean, he's not a woman in the 1980s trying to make it in the workforce with the boys club, basically just putting her down. I don't think it's his fault. I think that he's a junior about to be a senior in high school and he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Like, again, he's thinking about himself, rightly so, because he's trying to look out for Jonathan. He's trying to look out for his future and he's not worried about nor in all honesty, should he be worried about what's going on with her? Because she's the one being ambitious and she's the one being put down. Yes, the 2022 me looks back and goes, man, you should be defending your girlfriend. But if I'm living in 1985 as a 16, 17-year-old boy, and I say boy very deliberately, I'm not going to do that. And I wouldn't do that even as a high schooler back in like the 1990s because I'm not thinking about the bigger picture of the issues at hand. So I can't say that I don't agree with him fundamentally, but I understand his plight and that he's really trying to balance this. I love this girl, but I know that I need to maintain a sense of security for myself. And if it means leaning into, you know, being grateful for them giving me a job, I'm going to do that. Right. Yeah. And I think that when she said, you don't know what it's like, he says that too. You don't, you don't know what it's like. And I think in a way they yeah. both don't know what it's like to be the other. And, and I'm, I'm not That's true. belittling either. And they're different. They're both valid points. Jonathan is a white man. Yes. But, or boy, <laughs> but he comes from a poorer family. He doesn't have a father. His family has gone through traumatic experiences with his brother, his younger brother disappearing and dealing with all this crazy upside down stuff. She is a woman that has to deal with all the discrimination and misogyny and everything that women, especially of this time, had to deal with. But she also comes from privilege. She doesn't have to worry about money. She's got a beautiful home, everything she needs. Got a mom that's at home all the time to talk to her, help her out. You know, it's so they both have advantages and disadvantages in that sense. So really, what they need to be doing is just listening to one another and. Absolutely. Being there for each other. Yeah, but they're not going to do that because they're teenagers. (laughs) No, no. So yeah, they're definitely on the rocks here. I don't know if they've full on broken up yet, but they definitely are- On a break? uh, Yeah, yeah. They're on a break. I I, I don't even know if they haven't defined what's happening at this point, but they clearly are taking a minute. (laughs) (laughs) The friends with benefits, the benefits have gone away. It's just friends. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, so then we're back at Starcourt Mall. Robin has found the complete blueprints of Starcourt Mall. It's amazing what you can get for $20. She bribed somebody. That, they don't show any of this, but I think we're supposed to assume that she took the tip money, the $20 tip money, and went down to the county clerk's office and paid somebody 20 bucks to let her get a copy of the blueprints. That's my impression yeah. from this scene, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, blueprints are public records, so I think she just paid for them. I think that's yeah. copied. They're nice copies, by the way. And she reveals that the air ducts connect from scoops all the way to the secret room, as we're calling it. Steve gets up there. He investigates the ducts. They're small. They're clean. And, of course, he can't fit because he's a bigger dude. Dustin, with his (laughs) cladocranial dysostosis. This is the first time that the show actually acknowledges the actor's uh, condition. Real life, yeah, um, situation, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and apparently, as you've mentioned, I think in our first season conversation that, you know, it affects his mouth, the teeth sort of come in differently or not at all, and he needs braces. But also, 
you know, he can bend his bones because they yeah, are they don't, fully formed. He doesn't have any collarbones. Yeah. Yeah. I broke my collarbone twice in high school, once wrestling. So, hey, I, it, maybe it's not a bad thing not to have collarbones. <laughs> <laughs> they were the hardest bone to heal because you can't put a cast on. You, they oh, have that's to true. Yeah. Bone. So you have basically have to wear like a, this weird brace. It looks like a backpack that holds your shoulders back. And that way, and you just can't move. You just like to have to be really still for like three months. It's really not a su- fun. Like, yeah. like a superhero pose, like this. Yeah, just kind of hold your back. shoulders back, like you're like you're real, like you have really good. Po- it basically makes you have good posture and keeps your shoulders <laughs> back, so that the bones can get what they call sticky again, and kind of uh, ah. and and then start to you know, build up calcium to to uh, heal. So. Gotcha. Anyway, that's more information well, than you needed to know about collarbones. Well, I think I mean, yeah, we. I think we all need that. Yeah, we all yeah. need that for because <laughs> our posture, all of our posture, sucks in general since we're sitting down all day. Yeah. Anyway, um, so he Dustin tries to squeeze into the vent, and his condition doesn't allow. Despite for that. his, uh, yeah, his superpower, he still couldn't fit. <laughs> yeah, and this of course opens up more great lines from Steve and Dustin. Steve says that Dustin can bend like gumbo, to which Robin says, do you mean Gumby? And he's like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's gumbo. <laughs> so serious. Su- such confidence. And yeah. It's just... <laughs> and Dustin trying to squeeze into the vent, yelling. Come on, my feet, dumbass. Push my ass. What? Touch my butt. I don't care. Come on. Harder. Push it. Push harder. Don't play with my leg. I'm not playing. I have terrible footing. Get Here you go. I'm going to just shove you. Ready? You're shoving me. Two. Shit. Clearly, they are bonded. Just push you know, me. Just... Push me. But like, even if he got him all the way in, he's not going to be able to move farther down. No. He's just going to be stuck no. in the vent. And it's kind of fun so, to see Robin's expressions during this whole scene because she's just clearly she's seeing what we're seeing that this isn't working, and the fact yes. that they're still trying is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, but fortunately, yeah. there's a revelation in the form of Lucas's sister Erica, and of course, we get the same idea that she does of what ends up coming later. Yeah, yeah. Then we're back at the community pool, and while watching Billy in his long sleeve white shirt in. <laughs> 98 degree weather slurping on an icy. I'm hoping it was a Coke icy because those were the best. This is where Will reveals that the mind flayer likes to hide and that a person being possessed is dormant. And when you're needed, you're activated. So I think they're trying to figure out, you know, is, is Billy possessed? And, you know, he doesn't look like it because, you know, even though he doesn't have his shirt off, you know, he's not doing anything nefarious. But I think that, you know, they're giving us more clues. This is a great episode to kind of clue guys like me in who may not quite get all the subtleties and right, telling right. me that it's like they're filling like the blanks in finally, you know, to kind of so we so yeah, so that everyone's on the same page. Mike gets an idea. It's a boys only idea, much to the dismay of both Max and L. I love the facial expressions are like really this is this is yeah. how we're gonna go. We just had this whole fallout about boys and girls and you're like just reinforcing all this right. nonsense. Mike devises a plan to get Billy into the sauna where they will turn it up to 220, 220 degrees in order to see if he's actually the host. Because the assumption is that just like with Will, if you can turn up the heat hot enough, something will happen or some somebody's getting pissed. Either it's going to be it'll, Billy yeah, or the Mind Flayer. Yeah, create some separation or, yeah. It- so then we're back at Scoops Ahoy and after assessing the situation, Erica starts negotiating with the trio. So they're at the booth, different ice cream abounds, 
I want to say, nice job, Steve, or Dustin, or whoever, or Robin, on yeah. the boat Sunday. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. I mean, you, when you're slinging ice cream, I give kudos to the the ice cream shops like your marble slabs and your cold stones who like mix yeah. the ice cream with your toppings and they make it look great. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty cool boat. Yeah, for, it's an art you know, form. For a ge- I think they, it is I an think art I form. I heard them call it the USS Butterscotch. Did you catch that? Oh, is that what it was called? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> I don't know if that's like formally what it's called, like, or if that's what they, they named it, you know, it is yeah. like a, a joke, but. Yeah. As funny as this is, Erica's delivery is off in some way for me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what, I feel as though the lines that she says are like comedic lines, but they feel very forced. And maybe it's because of the way she's delivering them. Maybe it's the fact that we're meant to laugh that she's saying these mature 19, 20, 21 year old things as like a, a nine or 10 year old. Yeah. But it doesn't come across as really funny to me besides the the line. You can't spell America without Eric. I mean, I think that's the most memorable that's line clever, in the scene, yeah. mm-hmm. but it just, it feels not like a character is saying these. It feels like an actor playing a character is just spouting off these lines. And I, I get the intent. I get the fact that mm-hmm. she is her own girl, that she's got her own mindset. It creates this funny setup for negotiating free ice cream for life. But at the same time, it just doesn't land for me. And I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just a personal opinion, but yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. Uh, I think she just feels too young to have, that much attitude and sort of awareness. I have a nine-year-old daughter and she does not and would never speak the way she does in this episode. And I, yeah, so I, I agree. I think she's talking and behaving in a way that a much older individual who has more years of experience, I get what they're trying to do, as you said. It almost sounds like she's repeating things that she may hear from an older yeah. sibling or her mother, but she seems too aware of what she's saying. Like she seems to understand what she's saying in a way that I don't think a typical nine-year-old would know. Mm-hmm. So That's a great way to put it, that she's just reciting stuff that she's heard. Again, played for laughs, the point gets made. And so, again, if there's agency here where she's now being used, as we see later on, then, then kudos. But... um but yeah, it just didn't, yeah, it wasn't my favorite. Then we're back at Klein's house. Um, Hopper brings him in. He's bleeding all over everything, including the yeah. fake animal rug in the entryway. <laughs> <laughs> they go up to Klein's bedroom where he pulls out some land deeds and transfers a property from his safe, which Hopper thinks is kind of weird. Like, why are you keeping legal documents that would probably be at the courthouse in your home safe? His bedroom is the most tacky 80s decor. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, yes. he has a mirror on his ceiling above his bed. He's got like columns throughout his bedroom like he's in ancient Rome. You know, it's like, what? It's is, gaudy. Is this guy? Yeah, it's so it's gaudy. It's so gaudy. And, 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 but, and the, like pastel colors, just absolutely <laughs> what you ex- would expect, like, Scarface's bedroom to look like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or something. Yeah, this is clearly inspired yeah. by pop culture that's right. unrealistic. <laughs> right. This is not <laughs> this guy's Mayor Klein doesn't have taste, so he takes the taste from fictional characters and just right. sort of melds them into this He's like, bedroom. This is of shame. what's cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> Question mark right there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. 
there's a moment where Hopper has the rubber band from the deeds and he uses right. it and makes like a little rubber band gun. I wonder if David Harbour did that spontaneously. I don't think so because obviously yeah. it was a cut, right. but maybe he suggested it to, to Sean Levy's like, Hey, what if I did this? And maybe he's like, yeah, we'll just do that. We'll do a quick cut. But I thought it was a great little gag. Yeah. A little like kind of passive aggressive. Well, I mean, it, it's aggressive, just, aggressive. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's continuing to show his, his sort of power over Klein, you know, that like, I've got yeah. you and like, I'm in control of this situation. That didn't stop him from attempting to jump out the window. <laughs> He's like, where are you what going? In the world? What yeah. are you do? What are you doing, Klein? What are you, do- where are you going to go? I mean, was yeah. there a balcony? Were you just going like, to commit suicide? What? Yeah. Where are you going to go? And what are you running from? Like Hopper, the chief of police knows what you're doing now. So like, you're not going to get away from this. Yeah. Meanwhile, Joyce is making a connection. Jordan Lake, uh, which is one of the properties, is next to the power plant. So are the other properties. And this is where she sort of ties her conversations with Mr. Clark to this, that the machine that he sort of theoretically thinks about or theorizes, that would be the better word, it may be at one of the properties from the Landies. Land deeds. Land deeds. Yeah, not Landies. (laughs) What's a Landy? Right, because they all sort of surround the power plant. So there's this sort of suspicion that power is playing a role, that electricity, right, energy, I should say. Because, again, yeah. Hawkins Lab was Department of Energy Research Facility. So clearly mm-hmm. energy plays an important role. Yep. In every season, it seems like. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it's at this point that Hopper offers her a job. I don't know if he was serious or not, but she turns him down. And I think it's halfway an offer, halfway a chance to for him to tell her, I'm really impressed with what you've done. You're yeah. not just a salesman. <laughs> right. I like that he says the opposite now. Earlier, he says, you know, you should stick to your sales job. Now, he says, you should forget your job in sales. Maybe come work for me instead, because you've, yeah. you've got some skills. And yeah. I like that. I think it's his way of sort of apologizing and sort of saying, I agree. you know, I, I, I shouldn't have said what I said earlier. Back at the Wheeler house, uh, Mrs. Wheeler is checking on Nancy, who in the scene with Jonathan, that scene finished up with her coming into the house, mom's vacuuming in apparently a really nice outfit. That's what you do, I guess. (laughs) And Nancy says, yeah, it was a light day, making an excuse. So in this scene, she's checking on her and she sees that she's been crying and they start talking in the kitchen. This is another great Sean Levy driven character scene between the mother and the daughter. And this is really, I think where Mrs. Wheeler rounds herself out a little bit. So if the Duffer brothers doubled down on the weird creepiness of Billy and Mrs. Wheeler for laughs in the second season and playing it out in the third, I think they did something really effective here where her choice not to go. I think that's what we figured out. Yeah. Cause she apologized yeah. to Billy later for not showing right. up. I think that set in motion a little small arc for her that sort of comes alive in this scene and she starts getting vulnerable. Yeah. It kind of reevaluated her life and her and what she has to be thankful for with her family Mm -hmm. and opens up to her daughter, maybe in a way that she's never done before. Yeah. She says, it's not easy out there, Nance. I know. People are always saying you can't, that you shouldn't, that you're not smart enough, not good enough, 
this world, it, it beats you up again and again until eventually I, most people, they just, they just stop trying. Interesting use of the dialogue here where she stops herself because we get the hint that she's talking about herself, that there are some regrets that she had dreams. She had aspirations and that she chose to live a life that would appear settled with her husband. And what we laugh about him always on the, in the recliner sleeping sort of softens up a little bit in this season so far, because when she sees him, he's sleeping in the recliner, but what's he's who's he sleeping with? He's got his daughter. Yeah. And I mean, we laugh, but it's not really fair that we give him crap because we don't know much about him. Yes. He has said lines that were like, Oh my gosh. I mean, these are worse than dad jokes. But at the same time, we see that Mrs. Wheeler made that choice because of what he's providing. Like we find out that he is making six figures in 1985. That's huge. I mean, it's a big deal. So, I think she's taking these experiences and passing them on to her daughter. I think there might be some regrets here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we don't know much about her, but we, for the first time, I think we're seeing that she is a really good mom and she wants to be, and she's yeah. trying to be even better. And maybe in light of recent events with Billy, it's made her realize, you know, I, I've got a great family here. I have to step up a bit you know i have to do a little more because mm-hmm. this is this is the life that she chose and and maybe mm-hmm. maybe she did experience something earlier in her her life similar to what nancy went through where she tried to pursue a dream but was shot down or was rejected or was told she couldn't do it and she didn't pursue it further she just stopped trying yeah. as she said and so we we don't know for sure but this is a helpful scene for nancy and i think it will help nancy not follow in her mother's footsteps she will keep trying, hopefully, as a result. And there's there's a good moment where she talks about where she gets her fight from. You're a fighter. You always have been. I honestly don't know where you get it from. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's, they clearly both know that's not possible. <laughs> Yeah, but then Nancy reiterates, she goes, I get it from you, Mom. Of course. And her mom says, if you believe in this story, finish it. It's not just a great mother-daughter moment, but it's a really empowering moment for an adult to believe in her kid, believe in this other person. And I won't call it a sisterly relationship. I don't think they have that. But it's, it's the first time I think we see that Mrs. Wheeler's being vulnerable enough to sort of meet Nancy at the level that she's at. And it helps right. kind of elevate Nancy a little bit more. So I thought that was a really great scene. And kudos to Sean Levy if he wrote it, if he now he directed it, obviously. But yeah. definitely a, another Levy touch in that uh, in that scene. Yes, great scene. So then we're at the community pool. Lucas is trying to apologize for what happened at Mike's house. He and Will are in this like shed, trying to this maintenance shed. I don't know how they get in there. Everything's lo- unlocked apparently because it's Hawkins and you know small town. Nobody cares. Um, unless there's, you know, crazy people, which there are now at this point. But uh, Will says they have bigger things to worry about. I don't disagree with him. I think he's focused because he sees that priority one is getting rid of the of the mind flayer. I like that Lucas is trying to apologize. Like he does the same thing yeah. Mike does. He said you really did have a good campaign. Just like when Hopper is telling Joyce, "Hey, come work for me." 
that roundabout apology, same thing's happening here where Lucas is, I think he apologizes, but I think he, I think more so he's saying you really did have a good campaign. Yeah. And you know, will in his grown up way, because he's growing up too. He says, look, let's table this. We got to stop this guy. You know, Will's good at two things. He's good at fighting interdimensional beings and good at being a dungeon master. <laughs> so, yeah, but he has priorities. He does. You know? <laughs> yeah. All he wants to do is play D and D unless he has to battle demogorgons and, and the like. Yeah. It's a rack and stack method, you know, <laughs> yeah. fighting the evils of darkness, DM, ride your bike with your butts, you know, right. that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, L is in another room. She finds a CPR dummy and Mike has some fun with it. I would do the same thing. You know, he's like, hello, what's going on? (laughs) She's not laughing though. I love Millie Poppy Brown's deadpan face. It is so funny because she's still pissed at him. (laughs) And then he tries to come clean about lying. He tells her why. He says Hopper was being crazy And instead of reacting like he would expect, she basically gives him that dirty look that she'd been giving him and makes a great point that maybe Mike and her room isn't all there is to life, that maybe she needs to hang out with her own species, (laughs) a.k.a. Max, that she needs to expand her friendships a little bit, to which Mike goes, you were spying on me. That's against the rules. And she's like, (laughs) I make my own rules. So she's clearly growing up a little bit, coming into her yeah. own as, as we're seeing her do. And it's so fun. It's just so much fun. Yeah, she's finally, you know, sort of gaining some independence because if you think about it, Mike was the first person, at least of her age, that she encountered after she escaped from the lab. And they've been kind of joined at the hip ever since. So yeah, she needs right. a chance to branch out on her own and find herself. Except for her little yeah. one episode excursion to Chicago is all <laughs> to bring Chicago. <him> again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The scene ends with Max with the binoculars regarding Billy being the mind flayer. She says, I really hope it's not you. This is interesting because up to this point, they've had a tumultuous relationship. At the end of last season, she basically sort of tells him off, kind of gets the upper hand and says, don't ever do this or I'll kill you. I don't remember the exact words, but she basically stands up for herself. And I think we came to the conclusion at the end of last season, they sort of have a mutual respect for each other. Like she's not right. going to mess with him. He's not going to mess with her. But the fact that she says, I really hope it's not you tends to say something about how she feels about him. So I don't know if the last six months that we haven't been a part of her life, things have happened or if she's sort of reevaluated her relationship with him. But there's something else that happens later that sort of reinforces what she says here. It could just be that... <laughs> If he is the mind player, then they're going to have to kill him. She doesn't want that to happen. I think if he's just still a jerk and just the guy that he always is, then they can forget about yeah. him and leave him alone and don't, and he's going to, mm-hmm. you know, he'll live. So I think it's more just that she doesn't want to have to find out the truth about him. True. If it's, if it's true. true. Yeah. Maybe. As <laughs> you say, maybe. Maybe. But I will say that was a cool shot of, Billy's face with the sunglasses on and in the reflection of the sunglasses you can see you know the pool and all the people and you can see his um beverage or whatever oh, it was oh the icy yeah, yeah the, the coke icy, icy. yeah we yeah. assume it's a coke icy it should yeah. be a coke icy any other flavor right. it's right. just dumb so then i think this is something that happens and maybe it happens in other series too but the um, real-time cuts between multiple scenes that sort of increase the energy level this sort of happens right which i thought this kind of energy would happen near the end yeah 
So we're at Starcourt, we're at Klein's house, and we're with Hopper and Joyce in the car, kind of intercut. At Starcourt, Erica begins climbing through the vents. I kind of wonder how she knows where to go. I mean, yes, I guess she's sort of memorized the path. Yeah, I mean, I think Robin drew a pretty straightforward line. I think it would be something they must have just given her in advance and said, okay, this is what you do. You know, you follow this. But, you know, suspension of disbelief. Sure. I mean, the goof in me is like, well, there might be some left and right turns. I recently have been playing right. Marvel Spider-Man in which he goes through vents. And I'm like, there are other turns that are not the straight path, but they clearly have areas that you can't get to. So, you know, you're not supposed to go that way. So that's what I was thinking is I'm like, okay, does she know when to turn right? Does she know when to turn left? Needless to say, she gets there. So yes, yeah, yeah. she's smart I, enough for one reason or another. I was kind of hoping she would say, Come out to the coast. We'll get together. <laughs> it's from Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal. Whenever she yeah. gets to the room, and we do right, that. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, anytime someone crawls through an air duct, I mean, you can't not think of Die Hard. So it just no, comes to mind. Not at all. Yeah. She gets into the room, opens the door, and then, of course, recites her demand, which is ha ha funny. Not really. Whatever. Yeah. Klein, we're back at his house for a minute. His wife finds him and he's tied up and he demands the phone from his wife. And then Hopper and Joyce go to the first of three locations looking for the machine and they're 0 for 1. Right. They don't find it there. But it's like an abandoned house. Like I almost wanted to say, is this a place we should know? But it's not. No, it's just a, it's an abandoned house. It's just, yeah, they clearly, these people purchased property that no one cared about, you know, in yeah. in and around the power plant, I guess. And so they're yeah. we're looking for clues, but they're not really, yeah, they're not really seeing anything of value. Exactly. And those last two scenes or cuts of Klein and then Hopper and Joyce, they actually go unanswered. So we're not meant to fill in the blanks, but we know, okay, I'm asking the question, who is Klein calling? And I'm also right. asking, okay, are they going to find the machine at one of the other two locations? Because that doesn't get resolved by the end of the episode, the rest of the episode is dedicated to where I think craziness just amps up to 11. If if episode three was crazy, this is like absolute nuts (laughs) where we get to. (laughs) Yeah. Because we're back at the community pool. Billy finishes his day with a refreshing shower at, I guess it's like, look, it's dark. It's summer in Indiana. It's like nine o'clock at night. Yeah. It's like, or later, you know, it can be yeah. 30. I mean, it's, if it's that dark out, it's, it's between nine and 10. Yeah. It's late. Yeah. So he goes to his locker. Uh, doesn't even dry off before getting dressed, which is just a sin. I mean, no, you, <laughs> if you're going to do that air dry, because I've done that before, it's not comfortable when you got the sticky shirt. It's just, oh, no, yeah. use a towel, dry yourself off. He doesn't do it, but he's Billy or maybe he's not Billy. Billy Flair, Billy Mind, Mind Billy. Yeah. I don't know what you can call him. He hears noises, follows them to the front door where he finds out he's locked in. He gets pissed like he should. And this is where really great sound design comes in, like where it was on full display. Slamming the door, rattling the door, slamming his locker. A lot of like, just this is where the booming thing that I mentioned earlier yeah. just starts yeah. getting so big. Mm-hmm. He follows those voices that he hears via L's sort of telepathic ability to the sauna. He sees the dummy. And I like that after he sees the dummy, realizes what it is, he picks it up like it's an actual person. And then he turns around, there's L, and she slams him into the wall, knocking some of the tile off and locks him into the sauna. 
All she says is hi. <laughs> and then <laughs> boom. Duh. Yeah, boom. Once the door is shut, he looks through the window, he recognizes Max. Max looks at him. This is kind of what I was picking up on. Like she hesitates right. and then she goes, do it or whatever. And they turn up the heat and we're yep. left for the moment with him getting a nice little sweat bath in the, uh, in the <laughs> <Yeah>. sauna. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Meanwhile, at the hospital, Nancy goes to visit Mrs. Driscoll. And I'm reminded once again that people in Hawkins need to experience more outside of their small town because the nurse just believes she is who she says she is. Mrs. Driscoll's granddaughter reminds me of when Nancy and Jonathan just kind of snuck into the police station and stole their demon hunting equipment. And I know you justified it. You said, it's a small town. Nothing ever happens. Stuff needs to happen, Adam, because it's getting crazy and people need to take more precautions. I have a theory, though, with this night nurse. I her expression when she said, oh, I'm Nancy Driscoll, I'm, uh, I'm her granddaughter, and her kind of blank stare makes me think that she's totally knows that she's lying, but she just doesn't have any interest in stopping her. She's just like, all right, whatever you want. You know, that's how I took the scene, that she's just, okay. <laughs> she's lost all will to even fight with anybody. She's like, if you want to yeah. go see this woman, go see her. I know you're not her granddaughter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was the, that was what the actor told me in, in her eyes. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll accept that. We all that. get something different out of it. Well, yes, I'll accept that, but it still reinforces the fact that people in Hawkins don't care as much as they need to. No, <laughs> like they don't. Either out yeah. of ignorance or out of apathy, care more about your town. <laughs> she's not supposed to let anybody in, but she just does <laughs> likely doesn't care because she's like, what's the harm? You know, what's, what's. She's, mm-hmm. what am I going to fight with this girl for, you know? <laughs> so they don't pay her enough that basically they don't pay her enough. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so Nancy goes into the hospital room. Mrs. Driscoll's kind of struggling to sleep or breathe or whatever. And she's starting to check her chart. I don't know what she's going to find there. I mean, she's not a doctor yeah. uh, unless it just says obvious, like <laughs> was eating, um, Fertilizer. Fertilizer. Weird. (laughs) Yeah. That's the doctor's diagnosis. Stomach pumped for fertilizer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We see that Mrs. Driscoll's heart rate starts going up. Then we cut to the secret room. And at first you kind of think, oh, is it because Nancy's there? But then then we're like, no, no, no. There's a connection, which is why we have the intercutting. You know, so we yeah, we assume this is all happening at the same time. Yes. Yeah. And this is a slower intercut than what we experienced yeah. just before. So then we're back in the secret room in the quartet, you know, the trio with Erica. Open the box. What's in the box? And it reveals a, a small silver box, which is definitely not Chinese food, as Steve says. And it contains four cylinders inside it. And each one of those had four smaller cylinders in it. <laughs> <laughs> Russian dolls. The Russian right. connection is there. <laughs> it was a great shot, though, from the point of view of the cylinders, where like it was yeah. looking out. And that, I, I thought that was really, really fun. Where they that all kind of cool lean shot. in, you know, well, almost like rem- from inside the trunk of a car, you know, in a mm-hmm. in a movie. Well, I was thinking, I was thinking in Goonies when they reveal the jewels and everybody like oh, yeah. leans in to look at the right. jewels. That's kind of what I thought from from Very that good. shot. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Steve is about to pull out the the cylinders, and he's like, everybody get back. And what a great little bromance moment. Dustin basically yeah. says, no, I'm not getting out of the way. If you die, I die. And <laughs> there's something interesting about this, because you could have leaned way into that and made the music change, and it's real sincere. 
Instead, it's sincere, but it's like Steve Dustin bromance sincere, where Steve's like, right. okay. Yeah. He's not dismissing him, but he's like, I-, I see what you're doing. Okay, cool. Yeah. It's it's kind of a lighter lighter touch of, I'm glad you care, and that's cool. It's just a little reminder right. that Dustin cares about Steve. Steve's the only one that can really touch his butt when he needs to go into a vent, and so <laughs> right. the only one that he can trust to do that. So yeah. he's going to be close to Steve when he breaks this thing out. Right. And then he pulls out a cylinder that could be plutonium. I mean, it's probably not. Instead, it's green, and it looks like DNA. Like, I think, like, yeah. a, like a helix. Is that what it's called? Helix? Yeah, double helix. DNA helix? Yeah. Double helix, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I knew I had one word, right? I didn't wear the you, double you get, in front yeah, of it. Yeah, you but, it. It, it also <laughs> kind of reminded me of the, the the VX gas string of pearls from The Rock. If you remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's a, yeah. And then the room starts moving and then flying down a shaft like an elevator. So clearly right. the secret room is mobile at this point. <laughs> it's not even a room. <laughs> it's, it's an escape room because they need to right. escape. <laughs> right. Then a quick shot back to the hospital. Mrs. Driscoll's heart, heart rate is increasing. Then we're in the sauna. Billy gets amped up. And then he steps back. He starts sobbing, screaming over and over again, it's not my fault. I'm asking, is this genuine Billy? I kind of think it is. Me too. Because I, I think he's not—he's yeah. not completely point, taken over. Right. Yeah. As he's doing that, his hand reaches for a piece of like broken tile. This is when Will feels the mind flare, gets mm-hmm. the goosebumps, and he says he's been activated. When he was pleading with Max, it was—it was him as Max's brother trying to say like, "I didn't do these things. I didn't. I didn't want to do these things." It, it, he made me do them. Like I think he was really pleading with her at that point, and he probably was in pain. I mean, it was two hundred. Twenty degree. I mean, I don't know if I could stand in a room for two hundred twenty degrees. I I think I would not explode. I. I could not. So, <laughs> so I think he was legit. But that was like just before he was activated, and by the yeah. player. And then I think that's when he sort of gains almost superhuman strength and abilities. Yeah, he busts open the door, and then Lucas nails him with the wrist rocket, and right, I think it's a rock right. or something like that. Knocks him back. And then he starts changing like his form, like starts the skin. It's almost like he's like becoming a lizard of some kind. And at the same time, Mrs. Driscoll is doing the same thing. And I kid you not, Adam, I thought she was going to explode and she may have exploded. We don't see, (laughs) but I seriously thought at some point during this whole sequence, she's going to explode all over Nancy and Nancy's going to be traumatized for life and never, (laughs) ever come back from this. (laughs) Right. <laughs> Especially her. She's a big woman and that's going to be a messy, <laughs> messy explosion. <laughs> that would be messy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But you're right. This clearly connects the two of them. This We realize now that whatever's happening to Billy is also affecting Mrs. Driscoll and potentially uh, anyone else that might be possessed. Right. So then we get the Billy and L battle. And it looks great on screen. It looks like an X-Men battle where they're just going back and forth. Mike comes to Elle's rescue after she gets knocked out. And then she reciprocates when Mike gets picked up and choked. She ends up throwing Billy through a brick wall. And what a great way to finish this where her emotional state 
is on full display. She knocks Billy through the wall and then she leans back and she's in that embrace with Mike where mm-hmm. she is just sobbing. And I think it's because she's exhausted. She's scared. She is all these things at once. And it's so emotionally impactful to see how she reacts because it, you could have taken the superhero approach and had her like in season one where her nose is bleeding and she's got that angry face. But no, this has taken so much out of her. And what that tells us is that this creature is incredibly powerful, that it's going to take more than her powers to defeat him in some way, shape, or form. And the fact that he's possessed Billy, who's already a strong human being, this sort of amplifies the Mind Flayer's strength to a supernatural level that may have to take something else. She hasn't met an opponent like this yet. And I think she was caught off guard, you know, when she throws the the big barbell, you know, at him and tries to like choke him against the wall, you know, you think, oh, she's got him pinned down, but he like overpowers her, you know? So this is clearly a, a wake up call for Elle that she, she may not yeah. have what it takes <laughs> to take him down. He also, I think to a certain extent realizes that Billy, that is that he has to kind of regroup as well because he's, not perhaps at his full power because he's been injured. He's super hot, and clearly we know that heat affects anybody that's been possessed in this manner. So I think that, yeah, he kind of retreats, basically, or regroups so that he can live to fight another day. Yeah, and the last scene kind of reinforces that. Heather's talking to him, and he says, you know, I've sort of met a match that is questioning my strength and she's like it's okay we got these people and it's a great kind of panning out shot of this army that the mind flayer is gathering a diverse army by the way i think i saw different occupations different men and women a young boy in there (laughs) yeah yeah so clearly there's no prejudice here with the mind flayer he's like look i'm gonna i'm gonna take what i can get but yeah it's a it's a sobering shot and it's almost like that particular scene tells me that the mind flayer may not be recruiting like an entire town that he's recruiting or possessing certain people, maybe right. with certain gifts or maybe just randomly in order to accomplish a specific thing. So at the halfway point of the season, we're like lots of questions, lots of answers, yep. but this is kind of what you want from a series like this as we've gotten before. And it definitely hasn't disappointed. No, no, not at all. And I think the, uh, for me, at least I remember my first viewing, the thing that I was most excited to figure out was where was that elevator or room going and yeah, down yeah. to? Do you have any, have you come up with anything yet for yourself that you think or um, expect? I mean, jokingly, I think it goes down to the tunnels where all the tentacles are. So we're back to that now, but okay. <laughs> and yeah. dogs are living down there. No, I mean, that's the thing is this whole Russian subplot, again, as I said last time, I know it does connect, right? But I'm not, I'm not, not making how it I'm not does, seeing yeah. those connections yeah. directly. Yeah. So I think maybe they're under Stark. Like I think Star Court is a front for something, mm. and like there is a secret Hawkins type lab. Maybe that's what the you have a year. Maybe the Russians have discovered by infiltrating Hawkins that Hawkins Lab had cavities. <laughs> Not like right. teeth cavities, but they had yeah, the <laughs> they gates, bad, the openings. Yeah, 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 gates, and that it's a hotbed for this thing that they've been trying to discover. And so they're like, we're going to move in, we're going to put this mall as a front, but we're going to build this lab 
underneath that gets us closer because that's the thing that we discover in the first two seasons is that there was a lot of activity underneath the surface. Like the right. Hawkins lab was just like Hawkins sub level. And then like Brenner level, like where Brenner right. lives the, with all his the people. Real action happens. Exactly. Deep underground. Where all the magic yeah. happens. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think there's something there. I think that the green DNA is somehow connected to the, like they've captured some kind of bio, biotechnical entity of some kind. The naivety in me likes that, that I'm just sort yeah. of ignorant and I'm just, I, that's what I, keeps I you coming be, back. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're exactly right. I, I just, because I don't know what I don't know. Right. It kind of gets me wondering as I, as I listen back to some of these episodes, as they, as they're releasing, I'm asking questions that I realized never get answered, but I don't care because the right. overall story is very satisfying. And so, yeah, I will ask questions now, like, did Mrs. Driscoll explode? <laughs> and if yeah. I'd never find out, if we never come back to that, then I'm not going to be like, man, that season sucked because I didn't find out if she actually like exploded. Right. I mean, it's a question in the moment. And I, I realized that I've, I can ask so many, so many different questions in the moment that I, I don't come back to because other things sort of catch my eye. I am curious about, um, is there significance to one of the other two locations? Like, do they have a machine? If they don't, mm-hmm. are those MacGuffins? Where's that secret room going? And uh, one of the other questions I have is, is Billy the or a host? In mm-hmm. other words, right? does the Mind Flayer see him as like the guy and Heather is sort of like his kind of, um, I think of uh, gatekeeper type guy, the key master, key master. Right? Yeah. Key master. yeah. I think of, yeah. you know, is that, that, that kind of relationship yeah. where the gatekeeper and the key master, or are they just other hosts? Is like it more these like, other people? like the Borg, like are they a hive mind type? Approach yeah. Where they are yeah. all the mind player, you know, like they're exactly. all parts of him essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, and what's, very, and then what's Will's co- connection to this is what right, I'm asking. Right. So clearly he's not possessed, but he's got remnants. So, is what they were trying to do last season, which is use him as like a vessel on the good side right. to see what they call it. I don't remember what they call it, like a to spy on right. the mind flare where it ended up being the reverse of that is the remnant of him where he can sense it distant enough that he can actually fulfill that kind of desire that they had in the second season. So those are the things that are going through my yeah. head. Yeah. And if they get answered or not, that's, that's up to the Duffers, his, uh, up to Sean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> so. I think uh, Will's ability is called his uh, his Will Tingle. That's his Will, will tingle. tingle. Okay. Not 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 the Peter Tingle from Spider Man, but <laughs> 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 he just gets this little tingle on the back of his neck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> will bumps. We'll call him Will bumps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Guys, I'm getting the Will bumps. Will bumps. <laughs> Go lay down, Will. That's gross. Stop. Don't don't spread it's that. It's like upside down radar. You know he is. Uh... Okay. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, what's coming up next? Next up is chapter five, and it's titled "The Flayed." Like the the I'm flayed. Assuming, uh, the flayed, like uh, as in reference to the mind flayer. So okay, if, if the mind flayer flays, then one who is Flayed by the Mind Flayer is the Flayed, I'm assuming. Okay. That's an interesting use of the word. So there's someone, someone is the Flayed in this episode coming up, apparently. Okay. And I don't Hopefully remember. we won't be Flayed. I, 
I don't remember I don't the know. specific reference. It's been too long and too much has happened in my life. We'll find out on our next episode yep. of an original right. series. Thanks everyone for listening as always. And uh, we appreciate you coming back episode after episode, hoping you're enjoying the conversations like we are. I'm Patch. He's Adam and we are out of here.